Hello, hello. I would ask if y'all are excited for today, but frankly, being excited about today after how things were last week, that might be a bad sign. Because things were really bad last week. Um, uh, stream went well, but if we're talking, if we're talking Hunger Games, things were, things went poorly. Things went poorly. Purdy Spade says, this explains why you always used to ask about the audio during Vintage. Yeah, I mean, those little issues, they don't necessarily sound like a big deal during certain instances, but as they go through processing, like, uh, A, I notice it, and B, you know, I, I will work really hard on some of this stuff, and the difference between, the difference between, like, having a perfect recording of something and a really flawed recording of something can be huge. You know, and, and uh, so if, if I've got like a big finale or something and I don't didn't realize that, you know, on some Saturday night, maybe I'm doing a remote D&D &D with my friends at that point and uh, something in my audio gets changed and we've got like an echo or something's all weird. And then that week we're reading like the big finale of something, you know, I don't get a lot of second chances at some of these things. And so, yeah, in my in my books, it's like it's, it's important to me to get good audio. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's the sort of thing I'll, I'll, I just dedicate a lot of time to this. And so I want it to sound good because you, let's see how many people we have in here right now. You, you folks who are in chat currently, you're going to get this experience of it, but the recording, that's the one that 99% of people are going to get of this. That's the version they're going to get. Let's see. Let's see. Tanisha says, I forgot, which chapter are we up to now? Uh, this week is going to be the second to last stream of Hunger Games. At least of the core three books. Uh, as y'all may remember, I have committed to reading um, uh, of Songbirds and Snakes because I think it would be a good one. Um, I've, been, I've been hearing positive things on that front, and so I would like to read it. Um... I don't. I haven't committed to a timeline on that one yet. But uh, today, chapters, let's see, twenty-two, twenty-three, and twenty-four. Twenty-two, twenty-three, and twenty-four today. And since we're running a little bit behind, I think let's go ahead and jump into some of our review. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Chapters 18, excuse me, 1920 and 21. Uh, the very first part of the last part. Um, Boggs is angry because PETA is now with this crew and is going to be rolling with this crew, it seems, on their final mission here inside the capital. PETA's here, he's armed, briefly, um, but he still does not seem like himself. He has these moments where he doesn't necessarily seem entirely present. Um, he will have uh, little outbursts and still doesn't have a great relationship with Katniss. Um, some of the soldiers help PETA by devising a game called Real or Not Real. Um, PETA says something that he thinks happened. Um, and they tell him if it's real or if he imagined it, um, or more likely, you know, if if it is part of his hijacking that he imagines it. Um, such as most of the people from Twelve were killed in the fire. This is real. Less than 900 people made out alive. 
Uh, the fire was PETA's fault. That's not real. President Snow destroyed 12 the way that he did 13 to send a message to the rebels. Things like that. Um, PETA gets hung up on small stuff, but over time, he does seem to be improving and getting a better sense of what is real and what is not real. Um, let me see. As they progress through the capital, um, they end up on this little block that is not too busy. It doesn't have a lot in the way of traps, and this is intentional. They're the Star Squad. They're mostly there for the cameras. Um, they're supposed to be kind of out of danger because, frankly, now that the now that all of the districts have been seized, well, they don't need that same level of of uh, kind of direct leadership. Uh, they just need strategic leadership uh, in the capital, and they need to be able to progress into um, uh, I don't know into into the capital without. Um, mostly on their military might, I guess I will say. Um, they need to be able to progress on their military might. They don't need this this uh, sort of inspiration that is Katniss anymore because, well, all the districts are fallen and or joined. And so, Katniss, Peta, Gale, Finnick, Boggs, they're all part of this star squad and they end up on a particularly quiet block. And then they go to film some extra special propos, and the, bro the block gets a lot less quiet. Boggs dies very quickly um, uh, due to a surprise trap and transfers leadership of this squad by means of the hollow, this sort of like um, sort of mapping device, transfers leadership over to Katniss. Now, Jackson is not terribly happy about this. She is a, um, a sort of Boggs' second-in-command, but Boggs transfers it over to Katniss nonetheless. Um, and after some arguing, after deciding what to do about PETA and whether or not to let him free, after the, after the demise of a few more members of this squad, Katniss is in charge, and they are, they've decided they're going to head deeper into the capital. They're not going to disengage, they're not going to leave, they're going to head deeper into the capital, because Katniss says that the plan, the secret mission that was given to her, is to assassinate Snow, and bring this, bring this rebellious activity to an end, make, essentially take the final act. Hold on, hold on. Um, and in chapter 21, Peta is insisting that everyone will be safer if he's dead. But Katniss doesn't want to do it. Not right now. Not not even with the way that he is. Not even with you know how how dangerous, how volatile he can be. Um, and so instead, they continue to make their way through the capital. Um, they stop and hide in different places, sort of wherever they can find an, an open apartment or something, and slowly make their way through the very dangerous streets uh, until the streets get a little bit too hot, and we end up down below, down under the streets. Uh, one of the cameramen, turns out, he was he was down here for a while. As an AVOX, he started his work uh, down underneath the capital in these tunnels, uh, kind of the sewers, essentially, and so they travel through the sewers, and Katniss and Peta, they have a bit of a moment where Peta sort of seems to be realizing 
what they had before. But it is interrupted as Katniss's name is heard, hissed and echoing over and over again. Katniss. Chapter 22. The grace period has ended. Perhaps Snow had them digging through the night, as soon as the fire died down anyway. They found Boggs' remains, briefly felt reassured, and then, as the hours went by without further trophies, began to suspect. At some point, they realized that they had been tricked, and President Snow can't tolerate being made to look like a fool. It doesn't matter whether they tracked us to the second apartment or assumed that we went directly underground. They know we are down here now, and they've unleashed something. A pack of mutts, probably, bent on finding me. Katniss! I jump at the proximity of the sound. Looking frantically for its source, bow-loaded, seeking a target to hit. Peter's lips are barely moving, but there's no doubt the name came out of him. Just when I thought he seemed a little better. When I thought he might be inching his way back to me. Here is proof of how deep Snow's poison went. Cut the... Peter's programmed to respond to the hissing chorus, to join the hunt. It's beginning to stir. There's no choice. I position my arrow to penetrate his brain. He'll barely feel a thing. Suddenly, he's sitting up, eyes wide in alarm, short of breath. Katniss! He whips his head toward me, but doesn't seem to notice my bow, the waiting arrow. Katniss, get out of here! I hesitate. His voice is alarmed, but not insane. Why? What's making that sound? I don't know. Only that it has to kill you, says Peter. Run! Get out! Go! After my own moment of confusion, I conclude I do not have to shoot him. Relax my bowstring, taking the anxious faces around me. Whatever it is, it's after me. It might be a good time to split up. We're your guard, says Jackson. And your crew, adds Cressida. I'm not leaving you, Gail says. I look at the crew, armed with nothing but cameras and clipboards. And there's Finnick with two guns and a trident. I suggest that he gives one of the guns to Castor. Eject the blank cartridge from Peta's, load it with a real one, and arm Pollux. Since Gale and I have our bows, we hand our guns over to Masala and Cressida. There's no time to show them anything but how to point and pull the trigger. But in close quarters, that might be enough. It's better than being defenseless. Now the only one without a weapon is Peta, but anyone whispering my name with a bunch of mutts doesn't need one anyway. We leave the room free of anything but our scent. There's no way to erase that at the moment. I'm guessing that's how the hissing things are tracking us, because we haven't left much of a physical trail. The mutt's noses will be abnormally keen, but 
Possibly the time we spent slogging through the water in the drain pipes will help to throw them. Outside the hum of the room, the hissing becomes more distinct. But it's also possible to get a better sense of the mutt's direction. They're behind us, still a fair distance. Snow probably had them released underground, near the place where he found Boggs's body. Theoretically, we should have a good lead on them, although they're certain to be much faster than us. My mind wanders to the wolf-like creatures in the first arena, the monkeys in the quarter quell, the monstrosities that I've witnessed on television over the years, and I wonder what form these mutts will take. Whatever Snow thinks will scare me the most. Pollux and I have worked out a plan for the next leg of our journey, and since it heads away from the hissing, I see no reason to alter it. If we move swiftly, maybe we can reach Snow's mansion before the mutts reach us but there's a sloppiness that comes with speed. The poorly placed boot that results in a splash, the accidental clang of a gun against a pipe, even my own commands issued too loudly for discretion. We've covered about three more blocks via an overflow pipe and a section of neglected train track when the screams begin. Thick, guttural, bouncing off the tunnel walls. Avoxus, says Peter immediately. That's what Darius sounded like when they tortured them. The mutts must have found them, says Cressida. So they're not just after Katniss, says League One. They'll probably kill anyone. Show us that they won't stop until they get to her, says Gale. After his hours studying with Beatty, he's most likely right. And here I am again, with people dying because of me. Friends, allies, complete strangers, losing their lives for the Mockingjay. Let me go on alone. Lead them off. I'll transfer the hollow to Jackson. The rest of you can finish the mission. <laughs> no one's gonna agree to that, says Jackson in exasperation. We're wasting time, says Finnick. Listen, Peter whispers. The screams have stopped, and in their absence my name has rebounded, startling in its proximity. It's below as well as behind us now. Cut this. I nudge Pollux on the shoulder and we start to run. Trouble is, we had planned to descend to a lower level, but that's out now. When we come to the steps leading down, Pollux and I are scanning for a possible alternative on the hollow. When I start gagging. Masks on! Orders Jackson. There's no need for masks. Everyone's breathing the same air. I'm the only one losing my stew because I'm the only one reacting to the odor. Drifting up from the stairwell. Cutting through the sewage. Roses. I begin to tremble. I swerve away from the smell and stumble right out onto the transfer. Smooth, pastel-colored, tiled streets just like the ones above, but bordered by the white brick walls instead of homes. A roadway where delivery vehicles can drive with ease, without the congestion of the capital. Empty now of everything but us. I swing up my bow and blow the first pod with an explosive arrow which kills the nest of flesh-eating rats inside. When I sprint for the next intersection, where I know one false step will cause the ground beneath our feet to disintegrate, feeding us to something labeled Meat Grinder, I shout a warning to the others to stay with me. I plan for us to skirt around the corner and then detonate the Meat Grinder, but another unmarked pod lies in wait. It happens silently. I'd miss it entirely if Finnick didn't pull me to a stop. Katniss? I whip around. Arrow poised for flight, but what can be done? 
Two of Gale's arrows already lie useless beside the wide shaft of golden light that radiates from ceiling to floor. Inside, Masala is as still as a statue. Poised up on the ball of one foot, head tilted back, held captive by the beam. I can't tell if he's yelling, although his mouth is stretched wide. We watch, utterly helpless, as the flesh melts off his body like candle wax. Can't help him. Peta starts shoving people forward. Can't! Amazingly, he's the only one still functional enough to get us moving. I don't know why he's in control when he should be flipping out and bashing my brains in, but that could happen at any second. At the pressure of his hand against my shoulder, I turn away from the grisly thing that was Masala. I make my feet go forward, fast, so fast I can barely skid to a stop before the next intersection. A spray of gunfire brings down a shower of plaster. I jerk my head from side to side, looking for the pod before I turn and see the squad of peacekeepers pounding down the transfer toward us. With the meat grinder pod blocking our way, there's nothing to do but fire back. They outnumber us two to one, but we've still got the six original members of the Star Squad who aren't trying to run and shoot at the same time. Fish in a barrel, I think, as blossoms of red stain their white uniforms. Three quarters of them are down and dead when more begin to pour in from the side of the tunnel, the same one that I flung myself through to get away from the smell from the... Those aren't peacekeepers. They're white, four-limbed, about the size of a full-grown human, but that's where the comparisons stop. Naked with long reptilian tails, arched backs, and heads that jut forward, they swarm over the peacekeepers, living and dead, clamp onto their necks with their mouths, and rip off the helmeted heads. Apparently, having a capital pedigree is as useless here as it was in 13. It seems to take only seconds before the peacekeepers are decapitated. The mutts fall to their bellies and skitter toward us on all fours. This way, I shout, hugging the wall and making a sharp right turn to avoid the pod. When everyone's joined me, I fire into the intersection and the meat grinder activates. Huge mechanical teeth burst through the street and chew the tile to dust. That should make it impossible for the mutts to follow us, but I don't know. The wolf and monkey mutts I've encountered could leap unbelievably far. The hissing burns my ears and the reek of roses makes the walls spin. I grab Pollux's arm. Forget the mission. What's the quickest way above ground? There's no time for checking the hollow. We follow Pollux for about ten yards along the transfer and go through a doorway. I'm aware of tile changing to concrete, of crawling through a tight, stinking pipe onto a ledge about a foot wide. We're in the main sewer. A yard below, a poisonous brew of human waste, garbage, and chemical runoff bubbles by us. Parts of the surface are on fire. Others emit evil-looking clouds of vapor. One look tells you that if you fall in, you're never coming back. Moving as quickly as we dare on the slippery ledge, we make our way to a narrow bridge and cross it. In an alcove at the far side, Pollock smacks a ladder with his hand and points up the shaft. This is it, our way out. A quick glance at our party tells me something's off. Wait, wait! Where are Jackson and League One? They stated the meat grinder to hold the mutts back. What? I'm lunging back for the bridge, willing to leave no one to those monsters when he yanks me back. Don't waste their lives, Cadness. It's too late for them. Look! Holmes looks to the pipe where the mutts are slithering onto the ledge. Stand back! 
Gale shouts. With his explosive-tipped arrows, he rips the far side of the bridge from its foundation. The rest sinks into the bubbles, just as the mutts reach it. For the first time, I get a good look at them. A mix of human and lizard, and who knows what else. White, tight reptilian skin smeared with gore, clawed hands and feet, their faces a mess of conflicting features. Hissing, shrieking my name now as their bodies contort in rage, lashing out with tails and claws, taking huge chunks of one another, or their own bodies, with wide, lathered mouths, driven mad by their need to destroy me. My scent must be as evocative to them as theirs is to me. More so, because despite its toxicity, the mutts begin to throw themselves into the foul sewer. Along our bank, everyone opens fire. I choose my arrows without discretion, sending arrowheads, fire, explosives into the mutts' bodies. They're mortal, but only just. No natural thing could keep coming with two dozen bullets in it. Yes, we can eventually kill them, but there are so many. An endless supply pouring from the pipe, not even hesitating to take the sewage. But it's not their numbers that make my hands shake so. No mutt is good. All are meant to damage you. Some take your life, like the monkeys. Others your reason, like the tracker jackers. However, the true atrocities, the most frightening, incorporate a perverse psychological twist designed to terrify the victim. The sight of the wolf mutts with the dead tribute's eyes. The sound of the jabber jays, replicating Prim's tortured screams. The smell of snow's roses mixed with the victim's blood. Carried out across the sewer, cutting through even this foulness, making my heart run wild, my skin turn to ice, my lungs unable to suck air. It's as if snow's breathing right in my face, telling me it's time to die. The others are shouting at me, but I can't seem to respond. Strong arms lift me as I blast the head off of a mutt whose claws have just grazed my ankle. I'm slammed into the ladder, hands shoved against the rungs, ordered to climb. My wooden puppet limbs obey. Movement slowly brings me back to my senses. I detect one person above me, Pollux. Peta and Cressida are below. We reach a platform, switch to a second ladder. Rungs slick with sweat and mildew. At the next platform, my head is cleared and the reality of what's happening hits me. I begin frantically pulling people up off the ladder. Peta, Cressida. That's it. What have I done? What have I abandoned the others to? I'm scrambling back down the ladder when one of my boots kicks someone. Climb! Gale barks at me. I'm back up, hauling him in, peering into the gloom for more. No. No. Gale turns my face to him and shakes his head. Uniform shredded, gaping wound in the side of his neck. There's a human cry from below. Someone's still alive! I plead. No, Cadmus. They're not coming. Only the mots are. Unable to accept it, I shine the light from Cressida's gun down the shaft. Far below, I can just make out Finnick, struggling to hang on as three mutts tear at him. As one yanks back his head to take the death bite, something bizarre happens. It's as if I'm Finnick, watching images of my life flash by. The mast of a boat, a silver parachute, mags laughing, a pink sky, beady's trident, 
Annie in her wedding dress. Waves breaking over rocks. Then it's over. I slide the hollow from my belt and choke out. Nightlock, nightlock, nightlock. Release it. Hunch against the wall with the others as the explosion rocks the platform and bits of mud and human flesh shoot out of the pipe and shower us. There's a clank as Pollock slams a cover over the pipe and locks it into place. Pollux, Gale, Cressida, Peta, and me. We were all that's left. Later, the human feelings will come. Now I'm conscious only of an animal need to keep the remnants of our band alive. We can't stop here. Someone comes up with a bandage. We tie it around Gale's neck, get him to his feet. Only one figure stays huddled against the wall. Peter, I say. There's no response. Has he blacked out? I crouch in front of him, pulling his cuffed hands from his face. Peter. His eyes are like black pools. The pupils dilated so that the blue irises have all but vanished. The muscles in his wrist are hard as metal. Leave me, he whispers. I can't hang on. Yes, you can, I tell him. Peter shakes his head. I'm losing it. I'll go mad. Like them. Like the mutts. Like a rabid beast bent on ripping my throat out. And here, finally here in this place, in these circumstances, I will really have to kill him. And Snow will win. Hot, bitter hatred courses through me. Snow has won too much already today. It's a long shot. It's suicide, maybe, but I do the only thing I can think of. I lean in and kiss Peter full on the mouth. His whole body starts shuddering, but I keep my lips pressed against his until I have to come up for air. My hands slide up his wrists and clasp his. Don't let him take you away from me. Peter's panting hard as he fights the nightmares raging in his head. No, I don't want to. I clench his hands to the point of pain. Stay with me. His pupils contract to pinpoints, dilate again rapidly, and then return to something resembling normalcy. Always, he murmurs. I help Peter up and address Pollux. How far to the street? He indicates it's just above us. I climb the last ladder and push open the lid to someone's utility room. I'm rising to my feet when a woman throws open the door. She wears a bright turquoise silk robe embroidered with exotic birds. Her magenta hair is fluffed up like a cloud and decorated with gilded butterflies. Grease from the half-eaten sausage she's holding smears her lipstick. The expression on her face says she recognizes me. She opens her mouth to call for help. Without hesitation, I shoot her through the heart.
And that is the end of our first chapter of the evening. For those of you who wonder who I am, what this is all about, my name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories. If you want to find out more, go ahead and follow the links in this command here. Um, the links command can be used at any time. It can bring up the link tree, link tree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That is the link to follow, especially to the Discord, and that is the link to share. Now, I'll remind some of you folks uh, about some of our announcements um, as we get into our Chatterbreak question here. Let me start with the Chatterbreak question, and then we will move on to our, uh, our, our announcements. Um, first, of course, we have got, uh, you know, Katniss is charging toward the finish line here. There's not very far left to go, and yet each step is much more difficult than the last. Getting deeper into the capital is darn near impossible, and although she has made it happen once again, the losses are extreme. Finnick is gone. As Katniss continues to plunge forward here, we know that she's aware of all of the loss, right? She mentions it in the chapter here. She's aware of all of the lost souls that uh, that that pass as a result of her activities. Now, they do not negate the value of what she does. You know, she's not saying like all this loss of life doesn't make it worth it, but she is aware of how much loss of life there is for her to take every step toward uh, completing this rebellion, toward liberation, etc. She knows. There are lots of lives she's willing to give up. But we know that there are a few that she is not. Here's my question for you all. How far is Katniss going to be willing to go? And how much more tested is she going to be? Most specifically, she's got these two people with her that we know, Peta and Gail, they're kind of off the list. She would be willing to sacrifice just about anyone else, knowing, you know, that that at some point that loss will be reflected in something good, she hopes. Gail and Peta. Is she going to have to lose one of them or both of them? And if she's presented with a choice, what will she choose? There's our try to break question. Is Katniss going to be forced with the loss of Gale and or Peta to make this rebellion complete. And if she's faced with a choice, what will she choose? Will she choose the rebellion or will she choose these people? There we go. There's our chatter break question. Um, let me bounce back for a moment and talk about a couple of announcements. Uh, we have got our our Discord, right? I just mentioned the link there in chat, but what if we had a second Discord? What if in this Discord it uh, it were more of an RP Discord with places to go, things to discover, secrets to uncover, and uh, characters for you to play? What if we had a Realms of Recidus roleplay server? Now, for those of you who are not aware right now, uh, we are hanging out in the Realms of Recidus on Wednesdays. We are doing our second campaign in this world, and for some of you, it's a lot of fun to come in onto the streams and uh, share control over the character of Igor. But what if, what if 
What if you want to have your own character, a character of your very own who makes all of their own choices, uh, who can go ahead and join in some of the adventures that we have? What about a character who... What about a character who can make their own choices, who can make their own discoveries? I want to see what sort of characters y'all wish to create. I want you to join the realms of Versetus, and I want these characters to potentially, you know, join into the the uh, the adventures that we go on on Wednesdays. Uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I cannot wait to see what sort of characters you come up with. Mirden, we do not have a link to the server yet because it opens next Wednesday. The soft opening is going to be next Wednesday. We're going to open a small part of it such that I can sort of, uh, you know, get a hang for some of the mechanics. I was waiting for the perfect time to deploy it perfectly, and I've realized that's just not going to happen. So instead, we're going to take an incremental approach. Um, I am going to learn a lot about this. I've never done this before. Um, I'm going to learn a lot about it, and hopefully it's going to go well. But um, I want to I want to create this server. Uh, it will be almost entirely in character. Uh, the out-of-character portion will be handled in our normal server, but uh, in this one, uh, just a place for us all to go and hang out and, uh, and you know, have some cool adventures over there. Um, I plan to make part of it uh, very independent so that y'all can do your own things in there. And then also, uh, you know, I would love to run adventures with just groups of you, groups of viewers um, over in Discord. They will probably be all text-based un unless I decide that, you know what, it's a lot easier to do... Um, where, you know, I will come on audio and then y'all can respond in text-based, that kind of stuff. Um, but I want to see what sort of adventures we get up to. The soft opening. Like I said, we're going to open up a small part of it. And my clue, my keyword for you here is airship. And so, as we get set up for the soft opening on Wednesday, uh, the wide opening, the grand opening of the entire server is going to be during book fair. Uh, which is going to be mid to late September. Uh, I am, before next week, I'm going to be picking the dates for that. Um, so you can expect those very soon. But uh, the soft opening, be thinking airship. What sort of character would you want to be aboard an airship? There you go, folks. I'm very excited. Um, we're going to, like I said, we're going to learn about this. Uh, this, is the, this is the sort of thing that I am... I don't know how it's going to work, but I've been too excited about it for literally over a year at this point. I've been too excited about it and just thinking about, you know, how it would work, how I can deploy it, when might be the best time to do so. And at the end of the day, I've realized, you know what, there's not going to be a perfect time. So instead, I'm going to do it imperfectly. This is something that I really struggle with, is committing to doing things even though I know they won't be sort of perfect. Uh, I know some of my... <laughs> Some of my activities might not indicate that, but um, I definitely have, have trouble saying, you know what, I'm going to do this even though it's not going to be perfect from the beginning. I'm growing. I'm growing. I'm going to try and do, I'm, I'm doing my best, and frankly, I've been, I've been really thankful for all of you good folks um, who, have, uh, who have joined and decided, you know what, hey, these aren't perfect, but I'll hang out anyway. I'm really thankful for y'all. Uh, and Proteus Spade says, wait, book fair's happening? I wasn't sure. Yes, indeed. Don't forget about book fair, gang. Don't, you can't forget about book fair. Come on now. We got book fair. We got book fair coming up uh, mid to late September. Like I said, I will be picking the dates um, this week. So we'll have those dates by next week. Um, I'm super excited. Book fair was a ton of fun last year. Uh, I've already made a couple of suggestions about like, uh, like for instance, Stray. Uh, the game Stray seems like it's something that could well end up in our book fair rotation. Um, 
because I don't know, like I said, I don't know if I'm going to handle it exactly like last year, but it's still going to be a week of streams uh, where I stream like a ton during the day, uh, like last year. Um, Big Mom says, oh, I get to write another story for Book Fair? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we're going to have a lot of repeat events um, and then a lot of new events as well. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I'm going to be, we're going to be chatting about that over in Discord, so if y'all want to get in on that book fair action, uh, if you want to make suggestions, go ahead, head on over to Discord. Um, for right now, suggestions can just go in the general chat channel, um, and then I will probably make another sort of book fair, de oh, actually, I can just bring it back from, bring it back from the dead, from the archive chats, where are we at here? Where, here it is, book fair. You know what? I am just going to bring this channel back. That's what I'm going to do. I think I like that plan a lot better. Okay, here we go. Uh, the Book Fair channel is going to be... It's going to be right near the general chat is where I'm going to put this one. Uh, so, how can I... Hello? I've got too many channels. I can't, I can't move it properly. I guess I'll move it into Pit Crew. Keep current permissions. Okay, hold on. Hold on. We... We can do this. Oh, that's right. Duh, I can collapse all these down. But I don't have nearly as far to move it. Oop. Let me see. All right. There it is. Just up underneath general chat. Um, you should be able to chat in there. Let me check the permissions really quickly. Um, everyone can view this channel. You should be able to. And... Uh, people can send messages in threads, create threads, yup, attach files, add reactions, zippity doo da, zippity yay. Uh, oh, can I just, here we go, just sync it now, there we go, nails it, oh, there we go, oops. There we go. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, so, I have revived the Book Fair channel. Um, right now, if y'all are looking there, you're going to find a ton of clips from last year. We had a really, really good time, and I really enjoyed it. So, uh, go ahead and check that out, gang. Um, had a ton of fun. And uh, now, we are going to get back to today's stream. Going to refocus. Going to get back into it. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Don't forget, if you want to head over and uh, check out the... The, uh, the Discord, you can find a lot of those links in the Book Fair chat over there. And if you want to put in suggestions, that is the spot to put it. If you've got anything where you're like, I love this from last year, please go ahead and put this in. Uh, go ahead and uh, pop that in over there. Okay. Now, let me see. Uh, let's see about our chatter break here. Um... Uh, Orly Rose, I'm, I'm just going to take a couple here because I, I want to launch into our next one here. Um, Orly Rose says, I think she already has committed to Snow's death, but now she isn't going to look left or right anymore. If they're the capital, they're expendable. If they're in the capital, they're expendable. I absolutely don't think she would sacrifice either of them, but I think she would sacrifice herself instead of them. Hmm. Interesting. Let's find out. A quick spot of review. Katniss has brought down the capital. Katniss and her crew, uh, and the rebels in general, they have raised enough of the rebellion to take the capital. 
Um, they are, they have not taken it yet. They are moving in now. And uh, Katniss, as part of this sort of forward team, uh, they are now heading deeper and deeper into the capital as we speak. And they're doing so with great casualties. Lots of casualties. Um, we have just lost Boggs and Masala as part of the team, and then more recently even, uh, we are just, just off of the fresh loss of Finnick. They've been chased through the sewers by uh, terrifying lizard creatures that smell deeply of roses and blood, just like, just like the breath of President Snow himself. And now they are once again back above ground, they encounter some random woman here in the capital as they burst into her apartment, and without hesitation, Katniss shoots her in the heart. They've got a mission, and they've lost so many already. Chapter 23 Who the woman was calling to remains a mystery, because after searching her apartment we find she was alone. Perhaps her cry was meant for a nearby neighbor, or was simply an expression of fear. At any rate, there's no one else to hear her. This apartment would be a classy place to hole up in for a while, but that's a luxury we can't afford. How long do you think we've got before they figure out some of us have survived? I ask. I think they could be here any time, Gale answers. They knew that we were heading for the streets. Probably the explosion will throw them off for a few minutes, and then they'll start looking for our exit point. I go to a window that overlooks the street. And when I peek through the blinds, I'm not faced with peacekeepers, but a bundled crowd of people going about their business. During our underground journey, we have left the evacuated zones far behind and surfaced in a busy section of the capital. This crowd offers our only chance of escape. I don't have a hollow, but I've got Cressida. She joins me at the window, confirms she knows our location, and gives me the good news that we aren't many blocks from the President's mansion. One glance at my companions tells me this is no time for a stealth attack on Snow. Gale's still losing blood from the neck wound, which we haven't even cleaned. Peter's sitting on a velvet sofa with his teeth clamped down on a pillow, either fighting off madness or containing a scream. Pollux weeps against the mantle of an ornate fireplace. Cressida stands determinedly at my side, but she's so pale her lips are bloodless. I'm running on hate. When the energy for that ebbs, I'll be worthless. Let's check her closets, I say. In one bedroom, we find hundreds of the woman's outfits. Coats, pairs of shoes, rainbow wigs, even enough makeup to paint a house. In a bedroom across the hall, there's a similar selection for men. Perhaps they belong to her husband. Perhaps to a lover who had the good luck of being out this morning. I call the others in to dress. At the sight of Peta's bloody wrists, I dig into my pocket for the handcuff key, but he jerks away from me. No, he says. 
don't. They help me to hold it together. You might need your hands, says Gail. When I feel myself slipping, I dig into my wrists, and the pain helps me to focus, says Peter. I let them be. Fortunately, it's cold out, so we can conceal most of our uniforms and weapons under the flowing coats and cloaks. We hang our boots around our necks by their laces and hide them, pull on silly shoes to replace them. The real challenge, of course, is our faces. Cressida and Pollux run the risk of being recognized by acquaintances. Gale could be familiar from the propos and the news, and Peta and I are known by every citizen of Pan Am. We hastily help one another apply thick layers of makeup, pull on wigs and sunglasses. Cressida wraps scarves over Peta's and my mouths and noses. I can feel the clock ticking away, but stop for just a few moments to stuff pockets with food and first aid supplies. Stay together, I stay at the front door, and we march right out onto the street. Snow flurries have begun to fall. Agitated people swirl around us, speaking of rebels and hunger and me in their affected capital accents. We cross the street, pass a few more apartments. Just as we turn around a corner, three dozen peacekeepers sweep past us. We hop out of their way, as the real citizens do, wait until the crowd returns to its normal flow, and keep moving. Cressida, I whisper, can you think of anywhere? I'm trying she says. We cover another block, and the sirens begin. Through an apartment window, I see an emergency report and pictures of our faces flashing. They haven't identified who in our party died yet, because I see Castor and Finnick among the photos. Soon, every passerby will be as dangerous as a peacekeeper. Cressida. There's one place. It's not ideal, but we can try it, she says. We follow her a few more blocks and turn through a gate into what looks like a private residence. It's some kind of shortcut, though, because after walking through a manicured garden, we come out another gate into a small back street that connects two main avenues. There are a few pokey stores, one that buys used goods, another that sells fake jewelry. Only a couple of people are around, and they pay no attention to us. Cressida begins to babble in a high-pitched voice about fur undergarments, how essential they are during the cold months. Wait till you see the prices. Believe me, it's half of what you'll pay on the avenues. We stop before a grimy storefront, filled with mannequins in furry underwear. The place doesn't even look open, but Cressida pushes through the front door, setting off a dissonant chiming. Inside the dim, narrow shop, lined with racks of merchandise, the smell of pelts fills my nose. Business must be slow, since we're the only customers. Cressida heads straight for a hunched figure sitting at the back. I follow, trailing my fingers through the soft undergarments as we go. Behind a counter sits the strangest person I've ever seen. She's an extreme example of surgical enhancement gone wrong, for surely not even in the capital would they find this face attractive. The skin has been pulled back tightly and tattooed with black and gold stripes. The nose has been flattened until it barely exists. I've seen cat whiskers on people in the capital before, but none this long. The result is a grotesque, semi-feline face which now squints at us distrustfully. Cressida takes off her wig, revealing her vines. Tigress, she says. We need your help. Tigress. Deep in my brain, the name rings a bell. She was a fixture, a younger, less disturbing version of herself, at the earliest Hunger Games I can remember. A stylist, I think. 
I don't remember for which district, not twelve. And she must have had one operation too many and crossed the line into repellents. So this is where stylists go when they've outlived their use. To sad, themed underwear shops where they can wait for death. Out of the public eye. I stare at her face, wondering if her parents actually named her Tigress, inspiring her mutilation, or if she chose the style and changed her name to match her stripes. Plutarch said you could be trusted, adds Cressida. Great. She's one of Plutarch's people. So if her first move isn't to turn us into the capital, it will be to notify Plutarch, and by extension, coin, of our whereabouts. No, Tigress's shop is not ideal. But it's all we have at the moment. If she'll even help us. She's peering between an old television on her counter and us, as if trying to place us. To help her, I pull down my scarf, remove my wig, and step closer so that the light of the screen falls on my face. Tigress gives a low growl, not unlike one that Buttercup might creep me with. She slinks down off of her stool and disappears behind a rack of fur-lined leggings. There's a sound of sliding, and her hand emerges and waves us forward. Cressida looks at me, as if to ask, Are you sure? But what choice do we have? Returning to the streets under these conditions guarantees our capture or death. I push around the furs and find Tigress has slid back a panel at the base of the wall. Behind it seems to be the top of a steep stone stairway. She gestures for me to enter. Everything about the situation screams trap. I have a moment of panic and find myself turning to Tigress, searching those tawny eyes. Why is she doing this? She's no Cinna, someone willing to sacrifice herself for others. This woman was the embodiment of capital shallowness. She was one of the stars of the Hunger Games until... until she wasn't. So is that it then? Bitterness? Hatred? Revenge? Actually, I'm comforted by the idea. A need for revenge can burn long and hot, especially if every glance in a mirror reinforces it. Did Snow ban you from the games? I ask. She just stares back at me. Somewhere her tiger tail flicks with displeasure. Because I'm going to kill him, you know. Her mouth spreads into what I take for a smile. Reassured that this isn't complete madness, I crawl through the space. About halfway down the steps, my face runs into a hanging chain, and I pull it, illuminating the hideout with a flickering fluorescent bulb. It's a small cellar, with no doors or windows. Shallow and wide. Probably just a strip between two real blacements. What's a blacement, Sam? Shallow and wide. Probably just a strip between two real basements. A place whose existence could go unnoticed unless you had a very keen eye for dimensions. It's cold and dank, with piles of pelts that I'm guessing haven't seen the light of day in years. Unless Tigris gives us up, I don't think anyone will find us here. By the time I reach the concrete floor, my companions are on the steps. The panel slides back into place. I hear the underwear rack being adjusted on squeaky wheels, Tigress padding back to her stool. We've been swallowed up by her store. Just in time, too, because Gale looks on the verge of collapse. We make a bed of pelts, strip off his layers of weapons, and help him onto his back. 
at the end of the cellar, there's a faucet, about a foot from the floor, with a drain underneath it. I turn the tap on, and after much spluttering and a lot of rust, clear water begins to flow. We clean Gail's neck wound, and I realize bandages won't be enough. You're going to need a few stitches. There's a needle and sterile thread in the first aid supplies, but what we lack is a healer. It crosses my mind to enlist a tigress. As a stylist, she must know some work with a needle. But that would leave no one manning the shop, and she's doing enough already. I accept that I'm probably the most qualified for the job. I grit my teeth and put in a row of jagged sutures. It's not pretty, but it's functional. I smear it with medicine and wrap him up. Give him some painkillers. You can rest now. It's safe here. I tell him. He goes out like a light. While Cressida and Pollux make fur nests for each of us, I attend to Peter's wrists. Gently rinsing away the blood, putting on an antiseptic, and bandaging them beneath the cuffs. You've got to keep them clean, otherwise the infection could spread and... I know what blood poisoning is, Katniss, says Peter. Even if my mother isn't a healer. I'm jolted back in time, to another wound, another set of bandages. You said the same thing to me in the Hunger Games, the first ones. Real or not real? Real, he says. And you risk your life getting the medicine that saved me? Real, I shrug. You were the reason I was able to do it. Was I? The comment throws him into confusion. Some shiny memory must be fighting for his attention because his body tenses and his newly bandaged wrists strain against the metal cuffs. Then all the energy saps from his body. I'm so tired, Katniss. Go to sleep, I say. He won't until I've rearranged his handcuffs and shackled him to one of the stair supports. It can't be comfortable, lying there with his arms above his head, but in a few minutes, he drifts off too. Cressida and Pollux have made beds for us, arranged our food and medical supplies, and now ask what I want to do about setting up a guard. I look at Gail's pallor, Peta's restraints. Pollux hasn't slept for days, and Cressida and I only napped for a few hours. If a troop of peacekeepers were to come in through that door, we'd be trapped like rats. We are completely at the mercy of a decrepit tiger woman with what I can only hope is an all-consuming passion for Snow's death. I honestly don't think there's any point in setting up a guard. Let's just try to get some sleep, I say. They nod numbly, and we all burrow into our pelts. The fire inside me has flickered out, and with it, my strength. I surrender to the soft, musty fur and oblivion. I have only one dream that I remember, a long and wearying thing in which I'm trying to get to District 12. The home I'm seeking is intact, the people alive. Effie Trinket, conspicuous in a bright pink wig and tailored outfit, travels with me. I keep trying to ditch her in places, but she inexplicably reappears at my side, insisting that as my escort she's responsible for my staying on schedule, only the schedule is constantly shifting derailed by our lack of a stamp from an official or delayed when Effie breaks one of her high heels. We camp for days on a beach 
in a gray station in District 7, awaiting the train that never comes. When I wake, somehow I feel even more drained by this than my usual nighttime forays into blood and terror. Cressida, the only person awake, tells me it's late afternoon. I eat a can of beef stew and wash it down with a lot of water. When I lean against the cellar wall, retracing the events of the last day, moving death by death, counting them on my fingers. One, two. Michelin Boggs, lost in the block. Three. Masala, melted by the pod. Four, five. League One and Jackson sacrificing themselves at the meat grinder. Six, seven, eight. Castor, Holmes, and Finnick being decapitated by the rose-scented lizard mutts. Eight dead in 24 hours. I know it happened, and yet it doesn't seem real. Surely Castor is asleep under that pile of furs. Finnick will come bounding down the steps in a minute. Boggs will tell me his plan for our escape. To believe them dead is to accept I killed them. Okay. Maybe not Mitchell and Boggs. They died on an actual assignment. But the others lost their lives defending me on a mission I fabricated. My plot to assassinate Snow seems so stupid now. So stupid as I sit shivering in this cellar, tallying up our losses, fingering the tassels from the silver knee-high boots I stole from that woman's home. Oh. Yeah, I forgot about that. I killed her too. I'm taking out unarmed citizens now. I think it's time to give myself up. When everyone finally awakens, I confess. How I lied about the mission, how I jeopardized everyone in the pursuit of revenge. There's a long silence after I finish. Then Gale says, Godness, we knew you were lying about coins sending you to assassinate Snow. You knew. Maybe. The soldiers from 13 didn't, I reply. Did you really think that Jackson believed that you had orders from Coyne? Cressida asks. Of course she didn't. But she trusted Boggs, and he clearly wanted you to go on. I never even told Boggs what I planned to do, I say. He told everyone in command, Gale says. It was one of your conditions for being the Mockingjay. I kill Snow. Those seem like two disconnected things. Negotiating with Coyne for the privilege of executing Snow after the war, and this unauthorized flight through the capital. But not like this, I say. It's been a complete disaster. I think it'd be considered a highly successful mission, says Gale. We've infiltrated the enemy camp, showing the capital's defenses can be breached. We've managed to get footage of ourselves all over the capital's news. We've thrown the whole city into chaos trying to find us. Trust me, Plutarch is thrilled, Cressida adds. That's because Plutarch doesn't care who dies. Not as long as his games are a success. Cressida and Gale go round and round trying to convince me. Pollux nods at their words to back them up. Only Peta doesn't offer me an opinion. What do you think, Peta? I finally ask him. I think you still have no idea. The effect that you can have. He slides his cuffs up to support and pushes himself into a sitting position. None of the people that we lost were idiots. 
They knew what they were doing. They followed you. Because they believed that you really could kill Snow. I don't know why his voice reaches me when no one else's can. But if he's right, and I think he is, I owe the others a debt that can only be repaid in one way. I pull my paper map from my pocket in my uniform and spread it out on the floor with new resolve. Where are we, Cressida? Tigris's shop sits about five blocks from the city circle and Snow's mansion. We are in easy walking distance through a zone in which the pods are deactivated for the resident's safety. We have disguises that, perhaps with some embellishments from Tigris's furry stock, could get us safely there. But then what? The mansion's sure to be heavily guarded, under round-the-clock camera surveillance, and laced with pods that could become live at the flick of a switch. What we need to do? Get him out of there, into the open, Gail says to me. And one of us can pick him off. Does he ever appear in public anymore? asks Peter. I don't think so, says Cressida. At least in all the recent speeches I've seen, he's been in the mansion, even before the rebels got here. I imagine he's become more vigilant after Finnick aired his crimes. That's right. It's not just the tigresses of the capital who hate Snow now, but a web of people who know what he did to their friends and families. It would have to be something bordering on miraculous to lure him out. Something like... I bet he'd come out for me, I say. If I were captured... He'd want that as public as possible. He'd want my execution on his front steps. I let this sink in. Then Gail could shoot him from the audience. No, Peter shakes his head. There are too many alternative endings to that plan. Snow might decide to keep you and torture information out of you, or to have you publicly executed without being present, or kill you inside the mansion and display your body out front. Gail, I say. Seems like an extreme solution to jump to immediately. Maybe, if all else fails. Let's keep thinking. In the quiet that follows, we hear Tigress's soft footfall overhead. Must be closing time. She's locking up, fastening the shutters, maybe. A few minutes later, the panel at the top of the stairs slides open. Come up, says a gravelly voice. I have some food for you. It's the first time she's talked since we arrived. Whether it's natural or from years of practice, I don't know, but there's something in her manner of speaking that suggests a cat's purr. As we climb the stairs, Cressida asks, Did you contact Plutarch, Tigris? No, I do. Tigris shrugs. You'll figure out you're in a safe house. Don't worry worry. I feel immensely relieved by the news that I won't be given, and have to ignore, direct orders from 13. Or make up some viable defense for the decisions I've made over the last couple of days. In the shop, the counter holds some stale hunks of bread, a wedge of moldy cheese, and half a bottle of mustard. It reminds me that not everyone in the capital has full stomachs these days. I feel obliged to tell Tigress about our remaining food supplies, but she waves my objections away. I eat next to nothing, she says, and then only raw meat. This seems a little too in character, but I don't question it. 
I just scrape the mold off the cheese and divide up the food among the rest of us. While we eat, we watch the latest Capitol News coverage. The government has the rebel survivors narrowed down to the five of us. Huge bounties are offered for information leading to our capture. They emphasize how dangerous we are. Show us exchanging gunfire with the peacekeepers, although not the mutts ripping off their heads. Do a tragic tribute to the woman lying where we left her, with my arrow still in her heart. Someone has redone her makeup for the cameras. The rebels let the capital broadcast run on uninterrupted. Have the rebels made a statement today? I ask Tigress. She shakes her head. I doubt Coin knows what to do with me, now that I'm still alive. Tigress gives a throaty chuckle. <laughs> no one knows what to do with you, girly. Then she makes me take a pair of the fur leggings, even though I can't pay her for them. It's the kind of gift you have to accept. Then anyway, it's cold down in that cellar. Downstairs after supper, we continue to rack our brains for a plan. Nothing good comes up, but we do agree that we can no longer go out as a group of five, and that we should try to infiltrate the President's mansion before I turn myself into bait. I consent to that second point to avoid further argument. If I do decide to give myself up, it won't require anyone else's permission or participation. We change bandages, handcuff Peta back to his support, and settle down to sleep. A few hours later, I slip back into consciousness and become aware of a quiet conversation. Peta and Gale. I can't stop myself from eavesdropping. Thanks for the water, Peta says. No problem, Gale replies. I wake up ten times a night anyway. To make sure that Cartless is still here, asks Peta. Something like that, Gale admits. There's a long pause before Peter speaks again. That was funny, what Tigress said. About no one knowing what to do with her. <laughs> well, we never have, Gale says. They both laugh. It's so strange to hear them talking like this. Almost like friends, which they're not, never have been. Although, they're not exactly enemies. She loves you, you know, says Peter. She as good as told me that after they whipped you. <laughs> Don't believe it, Gail answers. The way she kissed you in the quarter quell. Well, she never kissed me like that. It was just a part of the show, Peter tells him. Although there is an edge of doubt in his voice. No, no. Now you won her over. Cave up everything for her. Maybe that's the only way to convince her you love her. There's a long pause. I should have volunteered to take your place in the first Hunger Games. Protected her then. You couldn't, says Peter. She'd never have forgiven you. You had to take care of her family. They mattered to her more than her life. Well, it won't be an issue much longer. I think it's unlikely all three of us are going to be out of here by the end of the war. And if we are... I guess it's Katniss's problem. Who to choose? <laughs> Gail yawns. We should get some sleep. Yeah. I hear Peter's handcuffs slide down the support as he settles in. I wonder how she'll make up her mind. Oh. That I do know. 
I can just catch Gale's last words through the layer of fur. Godness will pick whoever she thinks she can't survive without. Hello, good folks. I hope that you are well, and I thank you very much for joining me tonight. Once again, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. If you want to find out more about this channel, go ahead and follow the links. Linktree slash Sidecar Stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. You can use the links command at any time. That'll bring you there. That is the link to follow especially over to the Discord, especially as we have got, as we have got Book Fair coming up. Uh, next week, we've got the soft opening of our RP server. Tonight, we've got one more chapter left to go. Chapter 24. I want you to be prepared once again. Uh, these chapters don't get any less gory, frankly, than uh, the chapters that we read last week. So, I want you to keep that in mind. If that is too much for you, perhaps it might be better if you skip past some of these things um, and uh, just catch it on the recap. Speaking of recaps, I'm going to leave you all with a chatter break question. I am going to uh, go ahead and take a quick five-minute break, and then when I come back, we'll talk recap, we'll talk chatter break, and we'll read our third and final chapter for the evening, chapter 24. Once again, my good folks, next week is our last stream of the Core 3 Hunger Games books. I don't know precisely when I'm going to be reading Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, but I do intend to, and I will remind you all of a couple of things involving reading. Our next series after this is going to be the big one. The Lord of the Rings. I have committed to, at the very least, reading the first book. We're going to continue to take votes after that to see if y'all want to keep up with that one or push on to something new, but The Lord of the Rings, it's going to be a huge undertaking, but I'm going to do the darn thing. Uh, not only that, but as I as I believe I have mentioned, um, this 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 summer essentially got a little wild for me. Um, just trying to live a little skinny, trying to make sure that uh, we've got plenty of money for rent coming up here in the next couple of months. However, the temporary position that I took um, is wrapping up. The, the temporary third job that I took. This is this is job number one. I've got job number two at the, uh, the shop where I work, and then uh, job number three is now wrapping up. In addition, I have, um, I've been hired a couple of times to run RPG things, and I intend to continue to do that, and I'm making decent money at it. These are all really good things, because that means I'm going to be able to jump back into Vintage Sidecar. And if y'all remember, our next adventure in Vintage Sidecar is going to be none other than the Sherlock Holmes series. This means that coming up, we're going to be doing Sherlock Holmes concurrent with Lord of the Rings. We are going to be hitting some of the deepest, like, classics in each venue that exists. Lord of the Rings and Sherlock Holmes? Come on, come on now. I hope y'all are excited. I certainly am. Let me give y'all a chatter break question. When we come back, we will talk about review, and then we'll go on into our next and final chapter for the evening. Yeah, Monkey is excited! Y'all, get, get hype! Come on! This is going to be a great fall for sidecar stories. A great autumn for sidecar stories. Book fair coming up. 
Lord of the Rings, coming up. Uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, coming up. I hope you're excited. I hope you're real excited. I absolutely am. All right. So, with that said, uh, our Chatterbrick question is, I think, I think we have to stick with Katniss, but I want to... <laughs> I want to bounce between Katniss and President Snow. And President Coin. Katniss, President Snow, President Coin. This, a, a sort of trio of intents here. These are three people with potentially the most power in the entirety of Pan Am right now. Katniss and her actions will carry enormous weight even though she is not formally considered a leader. President Coyne, of course, seems to be winning this battle for supremacy against um, uh, the forces, the loyalists, to President Snow. And, of course, President Snow still commands quite a bit of uh, a bit of authority between the people who are loyal to him, either because they like the system that he upholds or perhaps just because he's got dirt on them and they know how dangerous President Snow is. These three people with enormous power... I, I'm going to ask a very ambiguous question. How do we think that these three powers, the powers of these three people, are going to clash? There's our Chatterbait question. How are the, the powers of Snow, President Coyne, and Katniss going to clash as we reach the endgame here? And part of the thing that I want you all to keep in mind here is the forms in which those power come. How they were gained, how they expressed themselves. I want you to think about the nature of power between these three individuals, because certainly Katniss's power and President Coyne's power are very different. I want you to be thinking about the nature of the power of these three individuals and how they are going to clash in the coming chapters. Remember, one more chapter tonight and one more stream next week. And that is the end of this book. I'm going to take a five-minute break. I will see you all then. It's been delightful. I'll see you in five. Bye-bye. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome back. It is good to have you here. Here. Hello everyone. I hope that you are well. Um, let me see. So Proteus Spade says something kind of funny, which is, also this chat is making me aware of the folly of audiobooks. I keep thinking coin, C-O-I-N, but apparently it's coin, C-O-Y-N-E. It is coin. It's actually coin. Um, Mirden says, I'm joking, uh, it is coin C-O-I-N, believe it or not. Believe it or not, it is C-O-I-N. I think people sort of assume it's coin C-O-Y-N-E. If I were listening to this and had not had it in front of me, I absolutely would have assumed it's C-O-Y-N-E. Um, uh, then again, I don't know, I guess I wouldn't have assumed that it was S-N-O, President Snow. President, President S-N-O with an umlaut, President Snow. John, John Snoo. <laughs> uh, but yes, coin. Spelled like the object. Uh, spelled like the currency. So, um, my good folks, do you remember that we had a bit of a Chatterbreak question? We've got, um, I want y'all to be thinking about the different types of power wielded by these three big, big characters. President Coin, C-O-I-N. President Snow, S-N-O with an umlaut. I'm joking, it's just Snow, S-N-O-W. And Katniss Everdeen. Three different kinds of power, wielded in three different ways, and about to come to a very sharp clash, assuming everything goes as it looks like they're headed. How do we think this is going to go? 
Proteus Spade says, I can very clearly see this revolution going right around Undercoin. She's been so vague about what she's actually going for. This is kind of a good point. We have heard some talk about uh, a, a representative government, um, you know, people from each district uh, representing the districts and, and coming together to form a central government. But we haven't heard a lot of talk about the ultimate actual genuine plan that they want to they want to install, how they intend to transition this power. That's a tough question to answer, but it's one that must be asked. Orly Rose says, I think they will clash in Katniss. If she kills Snow, Coin will try to be rid of her before Katniss takes over leadership in Pan Am. Uh, or at the very least, I'm, I'm dodging out of the quote for a moment here, um, or at the very least endorses someone else, right? She, and honestly, Katniss might have endorsed like Boggs at some point if he were still alive. Uh, Orly Rose continues and says, neither will they think, neither will think that they can let her live. And for Katniss, I think she will want to leave power behind and finally be free. This is true. This is a, it's never really been a power that she desired, and yet it's a power that she has. A power of influence. Pretty Spade says she can tell everyone how bad the capital is, but has nothing for how good she is. I believe this is in uh, reference to President Coyne. Um, Pretty Spade continues and says, Meanwhile, Katniss is a short-term revolutionary who wants change, but not power. She isn't good at planning, but she is good at inspiring. Uh, I think this is true. This, and this, you know, this is sort of what comes of having power with great power comes great responsibility and all that um you know katniss does have some responsibility and she's decided to take that up you know remember when she wanted to just just hack off and and uh, disappear for a while maybe forever well she decided she's going to take some responsibility here she's done well in that regard um but it's still not something that she feels entirely comfortable with she doesn't want people to listen to her she doesn't even want people to follow her people keep dying that way she doesn't enjoy that Big Mama says, I also think Katniss is so traumatized that she's on the verge of going feral, just moving into survival mode in a moment where she can feel safe somehow, if that moment ever comes to her. Yeah, she's not in a great position to wield the power that she has, is she? Mirden says, I think that if this was truly a bleak series, we'd watch coins slowly rise to power, turn into snow-like creature, uh, 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 figure, and then we watch the next generation rise up with similar lofty goals and repeat the cycle. That's the thing about revolution. It's always coming around. There is a bit of that, right? I think that's something we can see in the world. As as systems decay, uh, uh, the the possibilities are either uh, rebirth or destruction. <laughs> this is a, it's a fairly normal cycle for the world. Uh, Proteus Spade says. Also, this chat. Uh, oh, that's right. Uh, making me aware of the coin coin dis uh, distinction. So, everyone, that is our chatter break. Let's talk a bit of review. Chapters. 22 and 23. Katniss uh, leading this small crew uh, that includes some of the people closest to her. Katniss decides to head in deeper into the capital um, by way of the sewers. They meet some of the worst mutts we've encountered yet. They reek of blood and roses, which affects Katniss in particular, but they also kill a number of the squad, including Finnick. At this point, we are down to Gale and Peta. Um, let's see. I, let me see if I can find the full list here. Because um, I believe Jackson is gone as well. I'm hoping I can find the list. Um, 
Well, I'll tell you this, this much at least. Um, we have lost, in order, Mitchell and Boggs back on the block. Masala at the beginning of, uh, of today. League One and Jackson have sacrificed themselves at a, a trap that they called the Meat Grinder. Caster, Holmes, and Finnick uh, were taken by those lizard creatures, these lizard mutts. So, all that's left, uh, I mean, there are very few of them. Gale, Katniss, Peta, they're there. Um, Pollux and Cressida are still present, and that's about it for right now. Things are looking bleak, but they could decide to continue. Um, they emerge above ground, bounce from uh, kind of apartment to apartment, and find themselves now kind of at the mercy of a an old woman named Tigress. Uh, she has got very feline features. Um, she used to be kind of a big deal in the games, kind of a kind of a um, a. I can see his face. I can see that that Kravitz face. Um, what what is that character's name? What's going on right now? Hey, someone help me! I'm blanking on Lenny Kravitz's character's name. Uh, her stylist. His name was. I need help, chat. It's lost in there. It's it's one of those where I, I can tell I'm not getting this one back until I start to scroll way fur back. Thank you, Jade Dragon. Good lord, Jade Dragon, my dude. Uh, Cinna, thank you. Um, Jade Dragon, <laughs> to the rescue. Uh, and uh, Kerfos as well. I see you. Thank you very much. Um, Cinna. It's <laughs> it's John Cena. <laughs> Uh, nope, Jade, you are correct. It is Cinna, C-I-N-N-A. Um, kind of a big deal, this Tigress woman. Um, used to be kind of a, a Cinna-like figure. Uh, very well-known stylist in some earlier games. Now, managing, sort of, uh, owning this dark, dank little shop here. Um, and surviving as best she can. But we hear that, uh, we hear that there is maybe something in her that would cause her to hate President Snow enough to help out this group. But uh, currently, our little party is now in the basement of her shop, a hidden basement, sort of sandwiched between two other more official basements. Um, and they've decided they can't stay here too long. Um, their plan is to head out. They can't travel all together anymore. They're going to head out and head toward President Snow's mansion because it's just a few blocks away. If they can make it through the defenses, Maybe they can encounter President Snow long enough to do what they came here to do. Chapter 24. A chill runs through me. Am I really that cold and calculating? Gail didn't say, 
Katniss will pick whoever will break her heart to give up, or even whoever she can't live without. Those would have implied I was motivated by a kind of passion. But my best friend predicts I will choose the person who I think I can't survive without. There's not the least indication that love, or desire, or even compatibility will sway me. I will just conduct an unfeeling assessment of what my potential mates can offer me. As if in the end, it will be the question of whether a baker or a hunter will extend my longevity the most. It's a horrible thing for Gail to say, for Peta not to refute. Especially when every emotion I have has been taken and exploited by the capital or the rebels, at the moment, the choice would be simple. I could survive just fine without either of them. In the morning, I've got no time or energy to nurse wounded feelings. During a pre-dawn breakfast of liver pate and fig cookies, we gather around Tigress's television for one of Beatty's break-ins. There's been a new development in the war. Apparently inspired by the Black Wave, some enterprising rebel commander came up with the idea of confiscating people's abandoned automobiles and sending them unmanned down the streets. The cars don't trigger every pod, but they certainly get the majority. At around four in the morning, the rebels begin carving three separate paths, simply referred to as the A, B, and C lines, to the capital's heart. As a result, they've secured block after block with very few casualties. This isn't going to last, says Gale. In fact, I'm surprised they've kept it going this long. The capital will adjust by deactivating the specific pods and then manually triggering them when their targets come into range. Almost within minutes of his prediction, we see this very thing happen on screen. A squad sends a car down a block, setting off four pods. All seems well. Three scouts follow and make it safely to the end of the street. But when a group of twenty rebel soldiers follow them, they're blown to bits by a row of potted rose bushes in front of a flower shop. I bet it's killing Plutarch not to be in the control room on this one, says Peter. Beatty gives the broadcast back to the capital where a grim-faced reporter announces the blocks that civilians are to activate. Between her update and the previous story, I'm able to mark my paper map to show the relative positions of the opposing armies. I hear scuffling out on the street, move to the windows, and peek out a crack in the shutters. In the early morning light, I see a bizarre spectacle. Refugees from the now-occupied blocks are streaming toward the capital's center. The most panicked are wearing nothing but nightgowns and slippers while the more prepared are heavily bundled in layers of clothes. They carry everything from lapdogs to jewelry boxes to potted plants. One man in a fluffy robe holds only an overripe banana. Confused, sleepy children stumble along after their parents, most either too stunned or too baffled to cry. Bits of them flash by my line of vision. A pair of wide brown eyes, an arm clutching a favorite doll, a pair of bare feet, bluish in the cold, catching on the uneven stones of the alley. Seeing them reminds me of the children of twelve who died fleeing the firebombs. I leave the window. Tigress offers to be our spy for the day, since she's the only one without a bounty on her head. After securing us downstairs, she goes out to the capital to pick up any helpful information. Down in the cellar, I pace back and forth driving the others crazy. Something tells me that not taking advantage of the flood of refugees is a mistake. What better cover could we have? On the other hand, every displaced person milling about in the streets means another pair of eyes looking for the five rebels on the loose. 
Then again, what do we gain by staying here? All we're really doing is depleting our small cache of food and waiting for... what? The rebels to take the capital? That could be weeks before that happens, and I'm not so sure what I would do if they did. Not run back and greet them. Coin would have me whisked back to 13 before I could say, Nightlock, Nightlock, Nightlock. I did not come all this way and lose all those people to turn myself over to that woman. I kill snow. Besides, there would be an awful lot of things I couldn't easily explain about the last few days, several of which, if they came to light, would probably blow my deal for the victor's immunity right out of the water. And forget about me, I've got a feeling some of the others are going to need it. Like Peta, who, no matter how you spin it, can be seen on tape tossing Mitchell into that net pod. I can imagine what Coin's War Tribunal would do with that. By late afternoon, we're beginning to get uneasy about Tigress's long absence. Talk turns to the possibilities that she has been apprehended and arrested, turned us in voluntarily, or simply been injured in the wave of refugees. But around six o'clock, we hear her return. There's some shuffling around the upstairs, and when she opens the panel, the wondrous smell of frying meat fills the air. Tigress has prepared us a hash of chopped ham and potatoes. It's the first hot food we've had in days. And as I wait for her to fill my plate, I'm in danger of actually drooling. As I chew, I try to pay attention to Tigress telling us how she acquired it, but the main thing I absorb is that fur underwear is a valuable trading item at the moment. Especially for people who left their homes underdressed. Many are still out in the street trying to find a shelter for the night. Those who live in the choice apartments of the inner city have not flung open their doors to house the displaced. On the contrary, most of them bolted their locks, drew their shutters, and pretended to be out. Now the city circles packed with refugees, and the peacekeepers are going door to door, breaking into places if they have to, to assign house guests. On the television, we watch as a terse head peacekeeper lays out specific rules regarding how many people per square foot each resident will be expected to take in. He reminds the citizens of the capital that temperatures will drop well below freezing tonight and warns them that their president expects them to be not only willing, but enthusiastic hosts in this time of crisis. Then they show some very staged-looking shots of concerned citizens welcoming grateful refugees into their home. The head peacekeeper says the president himself has ordered part of his mansion ready to receive citizens tomorrow. He adds that shopkeepers should also be prepared to lend their floor space if requested. Tigris, that could be you says Peter. I realize he's right. That even this narrow hallway of a shop could be appropriated as the numbers swell. Then we'll be truly trapped in the cellar, in constant danger of discovery. How many days do we have? One? Maybe two? The head peacekeeper comes back with more instructions for the population. It seems that this evening there was an unfortunate incident where a crowd beat to death a young man who resembled Peter. Henceforth, all rebel sightings are to be reported immediately to authorities who will deal with the identification and arrest of the subject. They show a photo of the victim. Apart from some obviously bleached curls, he looks about as much like Peta as I do. People have gone wild, Cressida murmurs. We watch a brief rebel update in which we learn that several more blocks have been taken today. I make a note of the intersection on my map and study it. Line C is only about 
four blocks from here, I announce. Somehow that fills me with more anxiety than the idea of peacekeepers looking for housing. I become very helpful. Let me wash the dishes. I'll give you a hand. Gail collects the plates. I feel Peter's eyes follow us out of the room. In the cramped kitchen at the back of Tagrish's shop, I fill the sink with hot water and suds. Do you think it's true? I ask. That Snow will let refugees inside the mansion? I think he has to now, at least for the cameras, says Gail. I'm leaving in the morning. I'm going with you, Gail says. What should we do with the others? Pollux and Cressida could be useful. They're good guides. Pollux and Cressida aren't actually the problem. But Peter's too... Unpredictable, finishes Gail. You think he'd still let us leave him behind? We can make the argument that he'll endanger us. He might stay here, if we're convincing. Peter's fairly irrational about our suggestion. He readily agrees that his company could put the other four of us at risk. I'm thinking this may all work out, that he can just sit out the war in Tigris's cellar when he announces he's going out on his own. To do what? asks Cressida. I'm not sure exactly. The one thing that I might still be useful at is causing a diversion. You saw what happened to that man who looked like me. What if you... lose control? You mean go mutt? Well, if I feel it coming on, I'll try to get back here, he assures me. And if snow gets to you again, asks Gail, you don't even have a gun. I'll just have to take my chances, says Peter, like the rest of you. The two exchange a long look, and then Gale breaches into his breast pocket. He places his nightlock tablet in Peter's hand. Peter lets it lie on his open palm, neither accepting or rejecting it. What about you? Don't worry. Beatty showed me how to detonate my explosive arrows by hand. And if that fails, I got my knife. And I'll have Katniss, says Gale with a smile. She won't let him have the satisfaction of taking me alive. The thought of peacekeepers dragging Gale away starts the tune playing in my head again. Are you, are you, coming to the tree? Take it, Peter, I say in a strained voice. I reach out and close his fingers over the pill. No one's going to be there to help you. We spend a fitful night broken by one another's nightmares, minds buzzing with the next day's plans. I'm relieved when five o'clock rolls around and we can begin whatever this day holds for us. We eat a mishmash of our remaining food, canned peaches, crackers, and snails, leaving one can of salmon for Tigress, as meager thanks for all that she's done. The gesture seems to touch her in some way. Her face contorts into an odd expression and she flies into action. She spends the next hour remaking the five of us. She redresses us so regular clothes can hide our uniforms before we even don our coats and cloaks. Covers our military boots with some sort of furry slippers, secures our wigs with pins, cleans off the garish remains of the paint that we so hastily applied to our faces and makes us up again. Drapes our outerwear to conceal our weapons. Then gives us handbags and bundles of knickknacks to carry. In the end, we look exactly like the refugees fleeing the rebels. Never underestimate the power of a brilliant stylist, says Peter. 
It's hard to tell, but I think Tigress might actually be blushing under her stripes. There are no helpful updates on the television, but the alley seems as thick with refugees as the previous morning. Our plan is to slip into the crowd in three groups. First, Cressida and Pollux, who will act as guides while keeping a safe lead on us. Then, Gale and myself, who intend to position ourselves among the refugees assigned to the mansion today. Then Peta, who will trail behind us, ready to create a disturbance as needed. Tigress watches through the shutters for the right moment, unbolts the door, and nods for Cressida and Pollux. Take care, Cressida says, and they're gone. We'll be following in a minute. I get out the key, unlock Peter's cuffs, and stuff them into my pocket. He rubs his wrists, flexes them. I feel a kind of desperation rising up in me. It's like I'm back in the quarter quell with Beatty giving Joanna and me that coil of wire. Listen, I say, don't do anything foolish. Nope. It's last resort stuff. Completely, he says. I wrap my arms around his neck. Feel his arms hesitate before they embrace me. Not as steady as they once were, but still warm and strong. A thousand moments surge through me. All the times those arms were my only refuge from the world. Perhaps not fully appreciated then, but so sweet in my memory, and now gone forever. All right, then. I release him. It's time, says Tigress. I kiss her cheek, fasten my red-hooded cloak, pull my scarf up over my nose, and follow Gale into the frigid air. Sharp, icy snowflakes bite my exposed skin. The rising sun is trying to break through the gloom without much success. There's enough light to see the bundled forms closest to you and little more. Perfect conditions, really. Except that I can't locate Cressida and Pollux. Gale and I drop our heads and shuffle along with the refugees. I can hear what I missed peeking through the shutters yesterday. Crying, moaning, labored breathing, and, not too far away, gunfire. Where are we going, Uncle? A shivering little boy asks a man weighed down with a small safe. To the President's mansion. They'll assign us a new place to live, puffs the man. We turn off the alley and spill out into one of the main avenues. Stay to the right, a voice orders, and I see the peacekeepers interspersed through the crowd, directing the flow of human traffic. Scared faces peer out of the plate glass windows of the shops, which are already becoming overrun with refugees. At this rate, Tigress may well have new house guests by lunch. It was good for everybody that we got out when we did. It's brighter now. Even with the snow picking up, I catch sight of Cressida and Pollux about thirty yards ahead of us, plodding along with the crowd. I crane my head around to see if I can locate Peta. I can't, but I've caught the eye of an inquisitive-looking little girl in a lemon-yellow coat. I nudge Gale and slow my pace ever so slightly to allow a wall of people to form between us. We might need to split up, I say under my breath. There's a girl. <sighs> Gunfire rips through the crowd, and several people near me slump to the ground. Screams pierce the air as a second round mows down another group behind us. Gale and I drop to the street, scuttle ten yards to the shop, and take cover behind a display of spike-heeled boots outside of shoe cellars. 
A row of feathery footwear blocks Gale's view. Who is it? Can you see it? He asks me. What I can see, between alternating pairs of lavender and mint green leather boots, is a street full of bodies. The little girl who was watching me kneels beside a motionless woman, screeching and trying to rouse her. Another wave of bullets slices across the chest of her yellow coat, staining it red, knocking the girl onto her back. For a moment, looking at her tiny crumpled form, I lose my ability to form words. Gale prods me with his elbow. Cadmus. They're shooting from the roof above us, I tell Gale. I watch a few more rounds, see the white uniforms dropping onto the snowy streets. Trying to take out the peacekeepers, but they're not exactly crack shots. Must be the rebels. I don't feel a rush of joy. Although theoretically my allies have broken through, I'm transfixed by that yellow lemon coat. If we start shooting, that's it, Gale says. The whole world is going to know it's us. It's true. We're armed with only our fabulous bows. To release an arrow would be like announcing to both sides that we're here. No, I say forcefully. We've got to get to snow. Then we better start moving before the whole block goes up, says Gale. Hugging the wall, we continue along the street. Only the wall is mostly shop windows. A pattern of sweaty palms and gaping faces presses against the glass. I yank my scarf up higher over my cheekbones as we dart between outdoor displays. Behind a rack of framed photos of snow, we encounter a wounded peacekeeper propping against a strip of brick wall. He asks us for help. Gale knees him in the side of the head and takes his gun. At the intersection, he shoots a second peacekeeper, and we both have firearms. So, who are we supposed to be now? I ask. Desperate citizens of the capital. The peacekeepers will think that we're on their side, and hopefully, the rebels are their more interesting targets. I'm mulling over the wisdom of this latest role as we sprint across the intersection, but by the time we reach the next block, it no longer matters who we are, who anyone is, because no one is looking at our faces. The rebels are here, all right, pouring onto the avenue, taking cover in doorways behind vehicles, guns blazing, hoarse voices shouting commands as they prepare to meet an army of peacekeepers marching toward us. Caught in the crossfire are the refugees, unarmed, disoriented, many wounded. A pod's activated ahead of us, releasing a gush of steam that parboils everyone in its path, leaving the victims intestine pink and very dead. After that, what little sense of order there was unravels. As the remaining curlicues of steam intertwine with the snow, visibility extends just to the end of my barrel. Peacekeeper, rebel, citizen, who knows? Everything that moves is a target. People shoot reflexively, and I'm no exception. Heart pounding, adrenaline burning through me, everyone is my enemy. Except Gale. My hunting partner, the one who has my back. There's nothing to do but move forward, killing whatever comes into our path. Screaming people, bleeding people, dead people everywhere. As we reach the next corner, the entire block ahead of us lights up with a rich purple glow. We backpedal, hunker down in a stairwell, and squint into the light. Something's happening to those illuminated by it. They're assaulted by... What? A sound? A wave? A laser? Weapons fall from their hands. Fingers clench their faces as blood sprays from all visible orifices. Eyes, noses, mouths, ears. In less than a minute, everyone's dead. And the glow vanishes. 
I grip my teeth and run, leaping over the bodies, feet slipping in the gore. The wind whips the snow into blinding swirls, but doesn't block out the sound of another wave of boots headed our way. Get down! I hiss at Gale. We drop where we are. My face lands in a still warm pool of someone's blood, but I play dead. Remain motionless as the boots march over us. Some avoid the bodies. Others grind into my hand, my back, kick my head in passing. As the boots recede, I open my eyes and nod to Gale. On the next block, we encounter more terrified refugees, but few soldiers. Just when it seems like we might have caught a break, there's a cracking sound, like an egg hitting the side of a bull, but magnified a thousand times. We stop, look around for the pod. There's nothing. Then I feel the tips of my boots beginning to tilt ever so slightly. Run! I cry to Gale. There's no time to explain, but in a few seconds, the nature of the pod becomes clear to everyone. A seam has opened up down the center of the block. The two sides of the tiled street are folding down like flaps, slowly emptying the people into whatever lies beneath. I'm torn between making a beeline for the next intersection and trying to get to the doors that line the street and break my way into a building. As a result, I end up moving at a slight diagonal. As the flap continues to drop, I feel my feet scrambling harder and harder to find a purchase on the slippery tiles. It's like running along the side of an icy hill that gets steeper with every step. Both of my destinations... The intersection and the buildings are a few feet away when I feel the flap going. There's nothing to do but use my last seconds of connection to the tiles to push off for the intersection. As my hands latched on the side, I realize the flaps have swung straight down. My feet dangling the air. No foothold anywhere. From fifty feet below, a vile stench hits my nose like rotted corpses in the summer heat. Black forms crawl around in the shadows, silencing whoever survives the fall. A strangled cry comes from my throat. No one is coming to help me. I'm losing my grip on the icy ledge when I see I'm only about six feet from the corner of the pod. I inch my hands along the ledge, trying to block out the terrifying sounds from below. When my hands straddle the corner, I swing my right boot up over the side. It catches on something, and I painstakingly drag myself up to street level, panting, trembling, I crawl out and wrap my arms around a lamp post for an anchor, although the ground is perfectly flat. Gale! I call into the abyss, heedless of being recognized. Gale! Over here! I look in bewilderment to my left. The flap held up everything to the very base of the buildings. A dozen or so people made it to that far end, and now they hang from whatever provides a handhold. Doorknobs, knockers, mail slots... Three doors down from me, Gale hangs from the decorative iron grating beside an apartment door. He could easily get inside if it was open, but despite repeated kicks to the door, no one comes to his aid. Cover yourself! I lift my gun. He turns away, and I drill the lock until the door flies open. Gale swings into the apartment, landing in a heap on the floor. For a moment, I experience the elation of his rescue. Then, the white-gloved hands clamp down on him. Gale meets my eyes, mouths something at me I can't make out. I don't know what to do. I can't leave him, but I can't reach him either. His lips move again. I shake my head to indicate my confusion. At any minute, they'll know who they've captured. The peacekeepers are hauling him inside now. Go! I hear him yell. I turn and run away from the pod. All alone now. Gale prisoner, 
Cressida and Pollux could be dead ten times over. And Peta? I haven't laid eyes on him since we left Tigress's. I hold on to the idea that he may have gone back. Felt an attack coming and retreated to the cellar while he still had control. Realized that there was no need for a diversion when the capital has provided so many. No need to be bait and doesn't have to take the nightlock. The nightlock. Gale doesn't have any. As for all that talk of detonating his arrows by hand, he'll never get the chance. The first thing the peacekeepers will do is strip him of his weapons. I fall into a doorway, tears stinging my eyes. Shoot me. That's what he was mouthing. I was supposed to shoot him. That was my job. That was our unspoken promise, all of us, to one another. And I didn't do it. And now the capital will kill him, or torture him, or hijack him, or... The cracks begin opening inside me, threatening to break me into pieces. I have only one hope. That the capital falls, lays down its arms, and gives up its prisoners before they hurt Gale. But I can't see that happening while Snow is alive. A pair of peacekeepers runs by, barely glancing at the whimpering capital girl huddled in a doorway. I choke down my tears wipe the existing ones off my face before they can freeze and pull myself back together. Okay, I'm still an anonymous refugee. Or did the peacekeepers who caught Gale get a glimpse of me as I fled? I remove my cloak and turn it inside out, letting the black lining show instead of the red exterior. Arrange the hood so it conceals my face. Grasping my gun close to my chest, I survey the block. There's only a handful of dazed-looking stragglers. I trail close behind a pair of old men who take no notice of me. No one will expect me to be with old men. When we reach the end of the next intersection, they stop, and I almost bump into them. It's the city circle. Across the wide expanse, ringed by grand buildings, sits the president's mansion. The circle is full of people milling around, wailing or just sitting and letting the snow pile up around them. I fit right in. I begin to weave my way across to the mansion, tripping over abandoned treasures and snow-frosted limbs. About halfway there, I become aware of the concrete barrier. It's about four feet high and extends in a large rectangle in front of the mansion. You would think it would be empty, but it's packed with refugees. Maybe this is the group that's been chosen to be sheltered in the mansion? But as I draw closer, I notice something else. Everyone inside the barricade is a child. Toddlers to teenagers, scared and frostbitten, huddled in groups or rocking numbly on the ground. They aren't being led into the mansion. They're penned in, guarded on all sides by peacekeepers. I know immediately it's not for their protection. If the capital wanted to safeguard them, they'd be down in a bunker somewhere. This is for Snow's protection. The children form his human shield. There's a commotion, and the crowd surges to the left. I'm caught up in larger bodies, Born sideways, carried off course, I hear shouts of, The rebels! The rebels! And know that they must have broken through. The momentum slams me into a flagpole and I cling to it. Using the rope that hangs from the top, I pull myself up out of the crush of bodies. Yes, I can see the rebel army pouring into the circle, driving the refugees back into the avenues. I scan the area for the pods that will surely be detonating. But that doesn't happen. This is what happens. A hovercraft marked with a capital seal materializes directly over the barricaded children. Scores of silver parachutes rain down on them. 
Even in this chaos, the children will know what silver parachutes contain. Food, medicine, gifts. They eagerly scoop them up. Frozen fingers struggling with the strings. The hovercraft vanishes. Five seconds pass. And then about 20 parachutes simultaneously explode. A wail rises from the crowd. The snow is red and littered with undersized body parts. Many of the children die immediately, but others lie in agony on the ground. Some stagger around mutely, staring at the remaining silver parachutes in their hands, as if they might still have something precious inside. I can tell the peacekeepers didn't know this was coming, by the way that they're yanking away the barricades, making a path to the children. Another flock of white uniforms sweeps to the opening. But these aren't peacekeepers, they're medics, rebel medics. I'd know those uniforms anywhere. They swarm in among the children, wielding medical kits. First, I get a glimpse of the blonde braid down her back. Then, as she yanks off her coat to cover a wailing child, I notice the ducktail formed by her untucked shirt. I have the same reaction I did the day that Effie Trinket called her name at the reaping. At least, I must go limp, because I find myself at the base of the flagpole, unable to account for the last few seconds. Then I'm pushing through the crowd just as I did before, trying to shout her name above the roar. I'm almost there, almost to the barricade when I think she hears me, because for a moment she catches sight of me, her lips form my name. And that's when the rest of the parachutes go off. Of course, I prepare these. I, I, I go through these and prepare, but um, if we're talking about things I did not remember from when I read this on my own. This is one of those f slightly frustrating points in a book where being so close to the end, so close to a resolution, we are left with so, so many questions. And um, I'm going to leave you with some chatter break discussion. But it's one of those things where it almost has to be done in the spoilers channel because there's really no way to have this discussion without talking about spoilers. We're so close to the end here. Once we get through the next three chapters, the final three chapters that we'll be reading next week, the final three chapters of this book, then we will have things to discuss. But for right now, we don't really. 
not without just blank conjecture. These are some of the toughest chapters in the entire series, and you know, of course, sense, uh, sensibly so. Um, yeah, Dahlia mentions you may want to put a trigger warning on this one when you do your uploads. Yeah, I, I began last week with that, and I think I'm just going to put a blanket sort of like trigger warning on kind of the rest of the series. Um, there's a lot. There isn't a whole lot to say about this one. And so instead, I'm simply going to thank you all for being here. Don't forget, folks, we have got Book Fair coming up. Book Fair is going to begin, um, I'm, I'm going to pick the dates this week, uh, but Book Fair is going to happen uh, mid to late September, as we did it last year. Um, in spite of how this is, I am very, very excited. Uh, I am, <laughs> I am It's, see, it's tough to like come off of that thing and then jump into something uh, a lot more cheerful, but I, I truly am excited for some of the things that we've got coming up. Uh, Book Fair is going to mark the beginning of a few things. It's not going to be the beginning of these things. I'm probably going to start before Book Fair, but you know, we have got, like this this autumn, I should say, it marks a, a great time for sidecar stories. Um, we've got Book Fair coming up. We have got uh, the beginning of Lord of the Rings. We've got the beginning of the uh, Sherlock Holmes series. I'm super excited for all of these things. Um, we have got the opening up of the Realms of Recetus RP server. Uh, there are going to be spots in there. We're going to have whole sections dedicated to uh, the arena fights. We're going to have sections dedicated to uh, our current location uh, for our current campaign. Uh, I would really love to see you know, what is going on back at the school. Well, y'all might have a chance to decide that. Uh, if you've ever wanted to have your sort of Harry Potter adventures sneaking around a secret school at night full of magic, uh, well, I look forward to seeing what sort of characters you put together. Um... <laughs> Dolly says, oh my gods, I'm so excited about the RP server. As am I. It's one of those, and Dolly was one of a few people who sort of knew about this before. It's one of those things where I was looking for the perfect time to deploy it, where I could deploy it perfectly. And I just realized... That's not going to happen. So we're doing it. We're just doing the darn thing. Next week, soft opening. Think airships. Uh, you are absolutely going to have a chance to change characters um, when you are in that server. And so um, uh, I'm going to be sort of, I'm, I'm going to have kind of an approval process for certain characters. Well, for all characters, really. Um, I'm going to have a, a process by which y'all can sort of, uh, it'll probably be a Google form, I imagine, uh, where y'all can tell me about the characters as you imagine them. I will make any tweaks that need to be made just about things so that we can keep the world kind of coherent and sensible. Um, for instance, we aren't going to have any aliens. Like, that would be, you know, one thing I don't imagine you would jump in with. But, uh, hey, you know, <laughs> just something to think about. Uh, yes, I really want y'all to have... Uh, a chance to adventure in the realms of Recetus. Uh, I plan to have, uh, you know, art and lore and secrets to discover over there via uh, commands. Um, uh, you know, they're like literally they're going to be different things, like different secret uh, objects and places that you can find if you can figure out the right command. Um, and then, uh, you know, different roles are going to get you access to different places. 
if you choose to play like a vampire or a ghost or a lichen, some of you on our Wednesday campaigns, you know about Gambler's Fall, this sort of secret lichen hideout. Uh, if you decide to play a lichen character, you're going to have access to secret places like Gambler's Fall uh, that are get dedicated to lichen only. Uh, that sort of stuff. I, I want to do a lot of this. It's going to take me a while to get it all figured out, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the darn thing. There we go. I'm really excited for this autumn, y'all. Really excited. Um, things are looking, uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, uh, just this past week, essentially. Um, as of this past week, I've had a couple of opportunities pop up for me to uh, get paid to do some adventure running. If y'all are wondering, uh, <laughs> I haven't checked out Wednesdays yet because I just don't know if Sam is good at this sort of thing. Um, so far, the data is indicating that I'm I'm okay at it uh, because this last week I've I, I ran a one shot and then um, I've had a couple of contacts about people who want me to run things for them uh, and so I have had some opportunities and they are opportunities that give me a chance to uh, ply my craft uh, and and make a little bit of a little bit of money for it, which means that money uh, sort of concerns are going to be less pressing this fall. I'm super excited. I'm super excited. Hen <laughs> says, oh man, can my character be a questionable origin orphan with wings maybe raised by the hen folk? Jade, I think we can maybe figure something out along those lines. I think we perhaps can. Big Mama says, I think Sam should plan a side karaoke next week as a palate cleanser. Ooh, boy. See, that's one of the Big Mama, this is what I'm talking about. It is really tough to swing so violently from one thing to the other. Those, those are very disparate tones. I want to be clear, I'm super down for some side karaoke. Um, and uh, if we want to talk about that, uh, coming up for book fair, well, I'm going to need suggestions anyway. I've been looking at that game called Stray. That seems like it could be a fun one for us to play on stream. Um, if any of y'all have uh, taken a look at that, it's just a, it's a game where you play a cat in kind of a, a little bit of a sci-fi world. Um, you could probably imagine it's something similar to the capital here in Hunger Games. Um, just something to think about. Just something to be aware of. Uh, but you grand, grand folks, uh, head on over to Discord. I have got the links command available at any time. Linktree slash sidecar stories. That is the link to follow over to Discord. And if you want to help the channel out, that is the link to share. It's a link to share with people. Uh, I would love to get them in here for reading, uh, whether they are interested in the Hunger Games or uh, maybe stuff that we've read in the past or what we're reading in the future. Lord of the Rings, Sherlock Holmes. Maybe they're interested in tabletop RPG adventures. We are currently running a, a game that I wrote in a world that we created together. And frankly, nothing feels better than that. I'm super excited. Y'all are grand. I hope you have a delightful evening. And I will see you next week. Bye -bye.